Alright, and welcome to another episode of Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tape Heads is the podcast where we select a VHS tape from either my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it, and then we talk about it. On this episode, I believe, Lindsay, you chose out something for us. Yes, I did. We watched The Mask, the 1994 classic with Jim Carrey. I feel like this is the first movie I saw where I really knew who he was and loved him. Who Jim Carrey was? Yeah. Like, I recognized him as an actor and I knew what his name was. Because I feel like at that age, because this came out in 1994, so I was about four years old. And I, I feel like at that age, I just, until I was about six, I didn't really pay attention to who actors were. It didn't really matter to me. I just liked the movie. I remember there was just that tight cluster of huge Jim Carrey movies where it just went Ace Ventura. His the, career exploded. Yeah. The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, and as the Riddler in Batman Forever. And like oh, that, yeah. that all happened within like two years. And all of a sudden, he was like the biggest star in the world, just out of nowhere. The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, and Ace Ventura, Pet Detective all came out in the same year. So then maybe this was my first exposure to Jim Carrey. I didn't intensely focus on actors at this age, necessarily. I think, like, he and the Marx Brothers were some of the (laughs) earliest examples where... I like what this guy's doing. I'm gonna find every film that they've done and check it out. Yeah, and then he followed up this really great year in 94 with a Ace Ventura the sequel and Batman Forever in 95. And not to jump ahead of ourselves, but he, apparently his bad experience doing Ace Ventura 2 is what convinced him that he would not reprise the character of the mask. Yeah, and I'm just going to say that was a good decision. Yeah. You know, comedy sequels rarely turn out very well. I think it's just because... For some, I mean, granted, a lot of other genres don't sequelize very well, but yeah. I just feel like with comedies, once the initial kind of shock of, oh, this crazy character wears off, it's kind of like, where do you go from there? I think of the Hangover series. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the worst offender, I think, in a lot of ways, just in terms of retreading. Mm-hmm. Like, for the life of me, I can't think of a solid comedy sequel. And there probably is one that we can't think of off the top of our short heads. Short Circuit 2. I don't know what Short Circuit <laughs> 1 is. <laughs> but you know Short Circuit 2. There's Wait, there's got to be a good comedy sequel. I mean, there's a lot of them that are big box office successes, like Austin Powers 2 and that sort okay, of thing. Okay, yeah. But that's really just coasting on the goodwill of the first one. I think one of the problems is, is in trying to figure out what the best comedy sequels are is how you define a comedy like is toy story and toy story 2 are those comedies i would think of those as animated films right like that's more of a family film and you mentioned earlier that back to the future might be an exception but again i think of as more of a science fiction series yeah, that's not really a comedy and those either. flow very well into each other Although, interestingly, there was a contest in, I think it was called Nintendo Power Magazine to have a (laughs) walk-on role in The Mask 2 with Jim Carrey. Someone actually won that contest, but in the time that that happened, Jim Carrey decided he did not want to come back for a sequel, and they actually had to issue an apology to this person that had won the contest. Poor kid thought he was going to meet Jim Carrey. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Now, there we should mention that 11 years after the fact, there was a sequel. Sort of. A pseudo-sequel called Son of the Mask. And they got a, uh, that's a diplomatic way of putting this. 
a little bit of a downgrade in their leading man. Um, although I do like Jamie Kennedy and uh, Alan Cumming. Well, for, because of Scream. He's great as Randy in the Scream movies. Oh, I forgot that he was in Scream. I was I know him from the Jimmy Ken, uh, Jamie Kennedy experiment. Yeah, you know, people are really quick to bash Jamie Kennedy, but he'll always have a special place in my heart, be, if only because of Scream. But again, Son of the Mask was one of those movies that, uh, I mean, that's sort of an extreme example. I mean, that's often cited on worst films of all time lists. Yeah, I mean, some of the mask has a 6% on Rotten Tomatoes, and that's that's not really that easy to achieve. Pretend that somebody doesn't know anything about the mask. What would you tell them about it? Jim Carrey, early in his career, very eager to really get himself out there, although he's eager in everything. But yeah, he plays a kind of a guy that's a banker that's really kind of bummed out about his life really wants something more going on he doesn't like his job he doesn't he's not really seeing anyone and so this is it's really a story about a man who finds a magical mask that adds excitement to his life and he gets to meet a great lady and really change things up and that great lady is newcomer cameron diaz as tina carlisle i was astounded that this was her first major acting role and are we in agreement on this that she's great in it she's like, actually really good and she's she'd been really doing, good she'd been doing modeling before and she goes straight into acting and she's very charming this might be my favorite cameron diaz performance in anything even more than there's something about mary i would have to see that again but this yeah. is she pl- handles this character sort of the mob boss's girlfriend which is such a sort of archetype role she handles it so perfectly, and in a movie that's filled with sort of throwbacks to the 30s and 40s, like with the swing music and the fashion, and she's just kind of slides right in there so perfectly and just tonally knows how to navigate all this very well. Yeah, and it's interesting because her role could have been super flat. You know, somebody, somebody else, like Anna Nicole Smith, who they'd apparently considered for it, I feel like this movie would not be, have been as charming. And it wouldn't be something that I would have enjoyed as much with a different actress in that role. Yeah, you know, and her entrance is, I feel like, such an iconic 90s movie moment. Oh, yeah. When she comes in from out of the rain and is wearing... You mentioned that it was sort of a Jessica Rabbit. she's totally doing a Jessica Rabbit. Because, I mean, this movie is a sort of live-action cartoon, and Jim Carrey's character is obsessed with cartoons. I think that's a definite that dress was a definite reference to jessica rabbit that was a very conscious choice you also mentioned how jim carrey's character stanley ipkiss how improbable it would be for this character to exist today the likable (laughs) banker yeah although he is i guess put upon by an asshole boss so maybe you could see him today, but it is a little, I, it's hard to relate to a very sweet banker that you like and you're rooting for. We did have some ads on this tape. We had an ad for the soundtrack, which I think is only the second or third ad we've had for a soundtrack. Advertised as being as bouncing as the mask and as entertaining as the mask, which is just about <laughs> the clunkiest line I've ever heard. I liked the way that they did it, too. It was such a 90s ad. Like, I can't even describe how everybody... They had all these women in oversized suits with huge... with Still with the big shoulder pads in them and stuff. Yeah, that was Xcape that we saw. 
uh, mixed in with footage of the movie, uh, along with Tony, 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 Harry Connick Jr., and Jim Carrey himself is on the soundtrack. The next ad was for Pop Secret Popcorn. Yeah, this this ad really takes me back. It sort of reminds me of how I felt about the Pizza Hut ad on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles tape. This is a straight-up commercial for a product, which is really odd to see on a VHS tape. For whatever reason, these commercials stand out so much to me on these tapes. It's the dad making a midnight snack of microwavable pop secret, and he's waking up everyone in the house, including the dog. Which, like, why is it called Pop Secret when it's so loud that you can't keep it a secret? I like, think that's, that's the, line. the joke. Yeah, I, th- I feel like every 90s food or coffee ad just had families gathering around whatever food stuff it was. Yeah, and for some reason it also evoked memories of Home Alone and everyone gathering around all this product placement. Like the pizza and uh, Pepsi. Next we got a little uh, 10 second snippet of Space Ghost Coast to Coast. <laughs> Teasing an interview with Jim Carrey and the director Chuck Russell after the movie. Yeah, so Sean, you're not familiar with Space Ghost Coast to Coast, are you? I'm familiar with him. I just didn't really grow up with him. See, I grew up with it because Space Ghost was like a space hero. I don't even know, maybe the 50s to 60s or something in Hanna-Barbera. I believe I might be wrong on that. That's what I remember. Then in the 90s, he was resurrected to host this really off-the-wall animated late-night show that kind of riffed on sort of the Johnny Carson show experience. And it's just weird because Space Ghost, instead of being a hero, he's kind of a (laughs) douchebag that's really rude to people and he makes threats and there are a lot of awkward silences. Uh, Yeah, it's it's very dry and very funny. I like his Mantis um, band leader. After the movie, if you stay after the credits on the VHS tape, uh, there's a pretty long interview with Jim Carrey. Where you don't learn anything about <laughs> the movie because it's all about awkward silences and Space Ghost doing his weird, my hands are bigger than your hands stuff. Yeah, and testing out his laser and uh, killing his band leader at one point. And uh, he interviews Chuck Russell also, who... Um, it's a really great director, um, especially when it comes to visual effects and that sort of thing. He directed Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, which is the best of that series. Or at least the best sequel of that series. And he also did Eraser with Arnold Schwarzenegger, in which a not very convincing CGI crocodile has turned into luggage. Speaking of convincing CGI, I was surprised that the special effects in this felt held up so well. Like, it really, you can tell they're there, you can see them, but they, they're they made to be cartoonish to fit with the world, and so it's not jarring at all, and it doesn't feel dated. Yeah, that was the thing that surprised me in watching The Mask again, because so much of it is practical effects. I mean, his for most of the time when he, Jim Carrey and later... Peter Green is the villain, are the mask. It's it's a prosthetic around their head. They're very judicious when they use the CGI, and it's always sort of an over-the-top, intentionally cartoony look. Like when he has that really loud horn, or Mm -hmm. when his eyeballs are popping out of his head, or when he turns into a coyote (laughs) at one point. Yeah, they have so many direct references to actual cartoons. Like when... 
There's a scene that's really uncomfortable between him and Cameron Diaz at night in a park and uh, where he puts on the mask and he becomes a version of Pepe Le Pew. He's, he's the mask, but he's suddenly French. And that's absolutely what they're going for. And he's really aggressive to it's Cameron a little, Diaz. a little rapey. Yeah, it didn't, it wasn't something that registered to me when I was a kid, but then when I was watching it, I was super uncomfortable, I, I was seriously uncomfortable. Partially to sell a lot of different action figures of the mask, he has many different outfits and different personas. There's, the most common one is Zoot Suit uh, mask, but there's also Mamba mask and yeah. Parisian mask supposedly the zoot suit mask so you'd remember everybody knows that iconic yellow suit supposedly that was inspired by a suit that was made for jim carrey by his mom for a stand-up act he was doing although this is on imdb so we're not sure if it's verified i'd like to believe that it sounds really cute if it's true I just can't get over how much 1994 was the year of Jim Carrey. It really was the I mean, year that made him. I he, mean, he'd already been on In Living Color that year, and all three of those movies were such classics of my childhood. And I feel like for so many others our age. He never really had that period of being the supporting, like, funny sidekick. Yeah. He didn't go through that at all. Just all of a sudden he had these three huge vehicles in one year where he does Ace Ventura, The Mask, and Dumb and Dumber. Oh, by the way, there is a trailer for Dumb and Dumber. That's the last one on the tape. Oh, that's right, yeah. And all three, like, huge box office smashes. Yeah, I do have to note, for that trailer that we see in the in the tape, it's preceded by one of those um, slides that says, Coming soon to motion picture theaters near you. It's very formal. Motion picture theaters. I don't think, I don't remember that being a thing that anyone said. So that must mean that The Mask came out earlier in 94, came out on VHS in between his huge blockbusters. So technically Ace Ventura came out first in February of 94, then The Mask in July of 94, and finally Dumb and Dumber of December 94. And again, for someone who hasn't really had a major film come out, I mean, he'd done like little weird things like Once Bitten and Earth Girls Are Easy, but, mm -hmm. and, and of course uh, In Living Color, but what a crazy year for an actor to have. Yeah, it's really kind of amazing. I never realized how close all those films were. And The Mask in particular, at least at the time, felt so much a part of, like, the mid-90s zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. Like, the crazy CGI effects, uh, smoking, and, uh, somebody stop me! Like, these catchphrase <laughs> buttons... They, they, like, people would just walk around at recess saying these things, you know? Yeah. And I was surprised in revisiting this how much it holds up as a movie. Because I would say of those three big 94 movies that Jim Carrey had, this kind of is the least remembered. I'd say that Dumb and Dumber kind of people still talk about and Ace Ventura to a certain extent. But The Mask has almost become sort of this curio, I feel like. Yeah, it's kind of hard to say because I don't really spend a lot of time talking to people about Jim Carrey's career to know. <laughs> That's pretty much all I do. Yeah. 
I keep connecting it for some reason to Roger Rabbit in my head, maybe because we saw Roger Rabbit not that long ago, but it's still one of the interesting things about the world of the mask is it's kind of in between time. It doesn't, it's not really set in the 90s, even though it has that 90s flair to it. It's kind of set in this other reality where everything is a little bit art deco and a little bit, you know, 1930s and 40s informed by old Hollywood. It felt very much of its time, but then it it was kind of separated from it enough with all the stylization that I feel like it still holds up a little bit. It's not held back by the time it came out, which I think a lot of other films are kind of hurt by. I sort of liken it to Tim Burton's Batman and the melding of... I mean, it also came about at the time of the swing music revival, which kind of plays into Mm -hmm. all these, like sort of 30s and 40s gangster tropes that it has sort of going on so i mean yeah in in some respects it feels dated but it has aged pretty well it's it's a really compulsively fun movie his relationships with women in the film are kind of interesting because there there are two major female roles you're blonde you're cameron diaz she seems to be a kind of bimbo character but then she's shown to have a little bit more depth because she's playing that gangster's girlfriend kind of role. And she ends up switching sides to support Jim Carrey. So she's given a little bit of complexity there. But one of the other interesting roles is the there's a reporter who's a redhead. And then you noted there's a, there's a brunette that opens the film that doesn't really have a, a major role. Yeah, well, she's kind of an introduction to Stanley Ipkiss because... He clearly has a crush on her and he's gotten two tickets and she says, oh, but I, I want to bring my friend. And because yeah. he's such a nice guy, he gives both of the tickets to her. Aww. It's kind of some quick character building on the fly. But anyway, the uh, redhead reporter, she's kind of played as a potential love interest, a rival to Cameron Diaz. And it's played, I was really excited to realize, it's Maid Marian from Robin Hood Men in Tights. Amy Yazbek. And she does a really great job doing that kind of, oh, I'm your friend, I'm your friend. Oh, wait, huge betrayal. I'm going to let you die. I didn't want you to die, but I don't feel that bad about it because I have money. Um, which is kind of an interesting cold female character introduction there, too. It's kind of like this sort of, it's hard to trust women <laughs> that you find attractive. Do you know what I mean? Like, the point, one of the things that I thought int- was interesting with Cameron Diaz's character, she starts out super hot and super busty, and then they t- start to tone down her outfits when she starts to become more of a realistic love interest for Jim Carrey, and they become closer. We re- were reviewing part of the tape before we we recorded, and in Fast Forward, it's even more dramatic, because it just <laughs> seems like she's getting more garments of clothing as the movie goes on. Yeah, for a little while, it's like less and less fabric, and then suddenly, bam, loads of fabric. Which is a little puritanical on the movie's part. It's like, look, she's not a bimbo. She's someone you can bring home to Mrs. Ipkiss. Yeah, it's kind of like a... I mean, what did I say to you? I think it's like you can't marry the slut. You gotta... It's not a good way to put it, but essentially I feel like that's kind of the message. Like once she's toned down and isn't as sexualized, then suddenly she's a realistic option. And I kind of think that's a little bit of what they were doing, which you see that in other movies too. Yeah, I mean, her her character is sort of the, like, fell in with the wrong crowd, is stuck in this relationship with this mobster, Peter Green's character. And I feel like she's 
I mean, I think we're to assume she's never really been treated the way Stanley slash the mask treats her. Because he treats her, well, he totally is ogling her and stuff. But he treats her more like an actual human being than a decoration. Or a party favor, as she says at one point, which I thought was pretty progressive of the movie. Pretty knowing line. Well, maybe not super progressive, but it's (laughs) it's 1994, you gotta take what you can get. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, this is one of those 90s progressive movies where you get you get lines like that and then you get, like, people of color in the background. There was an Asian bad guy. Well, there's also um, Reg E. Cathy from House of Cards. Um, oh, yeah, you were, like, excited to recognize I was really him. excited about him. Uh, he's the doctor. He's, uh, <laughs> he, I guess, meaning that he works on safes. He's one of the uh, henchmen of Peter Green's character and. One of the few people that actually dies in the movie. Yeah. Like, it's a pretty light movie, we were saying, overall. I think he is the only person of color to have a line, though, to have actual speaking role, right? Or maybe Mm. I'm misremembering. So, uh, I'd like to talk about Peter Green as Dorian Tyrell, our, (laughs) our bad guy. I can't think of a single movie where he plays a good guy off the top of my head. I mean, there's Pulp Fiction, where he plays Zed. He's also in The Usual Suspects. He just has that white guy, slick-backed-hair evil look, though, you know? Yeah, he's kind of he's kind of cursed to the same thing that Andrew Devoff has, who uh, was one of the bad guys in Air Force One. Kind of squandered in Air Force One, but just kind of that, uh, that angry-looking face. He's a bad guy that's um, not really the big bad initially. He's he's being bossed around by another sort of gang leader. Well, I think it's sort of, he is he like an underling him. to that. Yeah. Like he's sort of an, a lieutenant for this bigger mobster, mm-hmm. Nico. Oh yeah, that's right. And then he just kind of decides he's had enough and he wants to take over. As you do. As you do. I thought, Sean, you had a really good eye for this. I didn't notice that he gets to keep his hair when he becomes the mask. The mask was originally a Dark Horse comic book character. So I guess that played heavily into the design of the character. But first I was just taken the first time that Jim Carrey appears as the mask. I forgot just how like bald and severe (laughs) like and gross his features are. And uh, I guess mostly to differentiate the villain when he finally puts on the mask, but also mm-hmm. to preserve Peter Green's awesome head of hair. He, uh, when I it's... don't think that was really his hair. You don't think so? Well, I mean, when he was human, but when he was the mask... Oh, yeah, then... when he's the mask, clearly it's a hairpiece. Oh, okay. but, <laughs> but it's kind of like... So this mask is sort of is supposed to exaggerate what's already underneath the surface. Mm-hmm. As Jim Carrey's character kind of needlessly spells out at one point when he's behind bars. I think that's kind of, you know, clear. Which Um, is kind of funny because this movie doesn't bother with too much exposition. Yeah, it's very good with the exposition. I mean, you get 30 seconds at the beginning of a scuba diving mission gone wrong, and then your mask is released into the river. And that's all you need. With a little Ben Stein scene thrown in later. Yeah, much later to say that it's the Norse, it looks like the Norse god Loki, but that's yeah. all we get. It's a trickster uh, god. But um, yeah, Peter Green's appearance is the mask, and I'm still not clear if someone else plays 
the body of Peter Green when he has the mask on because or just amazing prosthetics because he's got this huge like professional wrestler thick neck that's yeah. all veiny it doesn't there's seem no... like prosthetics to me the thing that's weird though is there's no credit for a stand-in unless that it's we could hidden. see i mean i guess these were 94 credits so they don't actually credit everybody that's true they're really really short yeah well even now they don't credit everyone but i think that credits are a lot longer now because there's more digital effects Supposedly, they saved money. They had planned to spend more on digital effects, but when they cast Jim Carrey, he's so rubbery and out there and totally into being a human cartoon that they didn't have to do as many effects as they anticipated just because of the way he moves. There's a great moment at the Coco Bongo Club where Jim Carrey shows up as the mask and uh, Cameron Diaz is sort of doing her number. And when he sits, when he goes to sit down at the table, of course, this is the table where he does a lot of his famous sort of CGI movements, like his jaw hitting the table and tongue <laughs> sticking out and his heart beating exaggerated uh, through his shirt and turning into a coyote and stuff. But there's this thing that he does, it's sort of a blink and you miss it moment where he puts his leg entirely over the table to sit down in the chair kind of needlessly. And uh, it's just such a great little physical moment. Yeah, he's just a master of that. That's what I've always loved about him as an actor. There's a mo So he's in this movie, and it's not that old, but um, it was after the Enron scandal, Fun with Dick and Jane. And it's not a great movie. I don't really recommend it, but there are so many different little physical moments that he has in it that it made it fun for me to watch because I had seen it with my family in theaters, and I feel like that was the only thing that really sold me on that film and made me enjoy it was just because of his pure physicality. One of the other things is that... Um, you guys may remember, if you Google it, you'll be able to see it. But when he's in his mask character, he has these larger, more cartoonish teeth. The intention was to have him wear these teeth in silent moments when he has isn't having to speak because they'd be really difficult to speak with. But Jim Carrey, because nothing stops him, decided that he would learn to speak with the teeth in and actually do every moment as the mask with them which just seems like a great choice because then it's consistent you're not seeing him with his regular teeth and then suddenly with these cartoonish teeth which could work for this movie but i kind of like that it separates him a little bit more from his human side we haven't even mentioned uh a few supporting characters that are pretty great there's a uh, richard jenny who plays charlie sort of stanley's friend who I had falsely remembered being played by Tom Arnold. Me too. I really thought you it was Tom Arnold. You had that experience Arnold. too? Yeah, you know, I think it's just because... Uh, he I mean, looks so much alike. Another movie from 1994, True Lies, which, <laughs> which has Tom Arnold kind of playing a similar character. Yeah, and I have seen True Lies. But yeah, Richard Jenny is really good in this character as kind of the like... He's not suave either, but he's sort of that buddy that is a little, you know, a little smoother yeah. than Stanley. God rest his soul. Yeah, I guess he passed away, didn't he? Yeah, which is the problem with this podcast, because we find that with a lot of people. Yeah, since we mostly do movies from the 80s and 90s, it's going to happen. And I'm sure everyone from Invasion of the Saucer People is dead by now. Oh, God. Uh, 
And then we've got our cops, Lieutenant Kellaway and Detective Doyle. The thing that's interesting about these cops, too, is that they don't bat an eye at the mask and his antics. Like, they're annoyed by it. They want to arrest him. But the fact that he has bottomless pockets that can seemingly hold huge bazookas and stuff. Well, even crazier is when he, they say freeze and he leaps in midair and turns into a popsicle. Yeah, and they're just kind of like, no, unfreeze. (laughs) Kind of like, that's not what we meant, but no, how the hell did you do that? Well, I think that that's the only way this movie works. Like, if they stop to question every crazy thing that he does, like, the movie would never go anywhere (laughs) because everyone would be saying that constantly it's sort of in a world a little outside of our own i mean that's how this is a live action cartoon or the fact that the mask's powers also extend to other people the way he's able to spin people around and change what they're wearing yeah i mean affect physical space the way that he does and which is actually that's kind of weird to me though because do their clothes change when morning comes and he's no longer the mask? Like, if he changed their clothes, do they change back? Because his clothes change back. He changes back. And then even when um his tie was shot and it returned to uh, the fabric from his pajamas that he'd been wearing when he transformed, that kind of thing, like... I don't know, maybe I'm looking too deep in this. Yeah, I think it's best just not to think about it. I think of it as sort of an exaggerated cartoon world. And, you know, it's Edge City. It's not even really a real city. Mm-hmm. And uh, Edgy enough that he pulls a condom out in one of the scenes. Yeah, during the animal balloon scene, that went totally over my head when I was a kid. I did not know what that was when I was a kid. And, you know, we haven't even mentioned uh, one of the real stars of this movie, his dog, Milo. Oh, that dog is so cute. What a great dog actor. He brings, he, he really was the one that, brought depth and emotion to this film. <laughs> uh, I mean, I imagine it was a few different dogs that played... Well, maybe it was just one dog. Um, I don't really know how dog law, dog employee law works. Yeah, it's a Jack Russell Terrier. And man, that dog from The Artist should just eat its heart out because this <laughs> is an amazing actor dog. It can pick up keys. It can... Uh, grow a cgi green head and and jump around and pee on a fountain pee on a fountain i was such a big jim carrey fan i think particularly because of the riddler the following year in batman forever that i actually sent him a fan letter um that included a picture of myself at that age and a drawing that i had made of the riddler and like a rambling note just about how great I thought he was. That's so cute. And he actually wrote back. It's pretty great. He, um, I mean, he may have just done, he may have just had an assistant do this for every single piece of mail that he got. And I'm sure it was a ton from, uh, seven-year-old boys at the time. But, um, he sent me back a headshot that said, spank you very much. (laughs) Signed Jim Carrey. And uh, I remember bringing that to show and tell at elementary school and being pretty cool. Well, you got letters from multiple people. Didn't you get a reply back from R.L. Stein? No. Here's what R.L. Stein does for his fans. He sends a boilerplate thing that says, Sorry, due to the amount of things that R.L. Stein gets, he cannot respond. And it would take the same amount of effort 
to just do what Jim Carrey did and have a, a, a... Like a generic, thanks for being such a great fan. Yeah, with his signature. It's like, in hindsight, R.L. Stein is kind of an asshole for doing that. Yeah, actually, I yeah, mean, that's it was, really bad. It was still an assistant that did it, but why send a boilerplate? It was like a when legal you, note. And you got a hand-signed photograph of Jim, Jim yeah, Carrey. Yeah, it was a really nice, like, 8x10 glossy of him. Which is still framed in your childhood. Oh yeah, you hold on to things like that. And uh, I remember one of the things that I asked him was was uh, I asked him if he could send me a list of every movie that he's in, and I would send him a dollar. And I think that my parents had a laugh about that because at the time he was the twenty million dollar man, meaning he was getting twenty million dollars a movie. And it's like, yeah, he's gonna hand write you a list of every movie he's been in in exchange for a dollar. Aw, that's so sweet, though. I was always kind of making, like, cash offers to celebrities. Like, I also sent, I think, a quarter to R.L. Stein for some similar thing. Like, send me a list of some of your books. And I, I remember I got the same boilerplate. I sent R.L. Stein a bunch of letters when I was growing up. Um, but that one in particular... The person had gone to the trouble of taping my quarter to the uh, boilerplate rejection letter, basically. And it, that just added insult to injury. Like, they wouldn't even accept your money. You know, and and, and heed this warning, uh, future celebrities who may be listening to this. I still consider myself a Jim Carrey fan, but I am not an R.L. Stein fan. Is that true? We were reading R.L. Stein short stories in our camping trip. That's true, but I don't have respect for R.L. Stein the way I respect Jim Carrey. So when we were reading those stories, you were hating it just a little bit. Well, I mean, it's just not good writing. Whereas I can look at a performance like this as, you know, very advanced physical comedy. The ending is a little anticlimactic, I would say, just because there is another, I mean, there's another showdown between Dorian and uh, Stanley Ipkiss, and the mask kind of juggles around owners from Dorian to the dog, which is a great, like, 60 seconds when uh, the, the dog is, has the mask on. I think it's kind of tough because that final, that final showdown, it's kind of fun while you're watching it, but there's really not a lot of, there's not really that much going on. Yeah, I think that that's the problem with something that's kind of on the nose like this. There's not there's not a whole lot of dimension that you can give the ending. And of course, at the end, as he's riding off with Cameron Diaz and his best bud, Charlie. Slash Tom Arnold. Slash Tom Arnold. He decides to toss the mask, but who chases after it? But his friend Charlie and his dog setting up the mask too. Coming to theaters, never. <laughs> Thank God. Although, as a kid, and I don't know if it holds up, but as a kid, I did enjoy the Ace Ventura sequel. All that I remember about the sequel is him coming out of the rhino's ass. And him speaking out of his ass in a tree. Oh, and he puts vegetables in his mouth and pretends he's a walrus, I think. At some kind of, like, highfalutin party. Yeah, I don't think you're really debunking this comedy sequel and the theory. And bat guano joke. There's a bat guano joke in there. He eats think, bat guano. I mean, you can choose Ace Ventura 2 for a future episode, but I do not think it's going to hold up the way that the mask does. I, I don't know why, but the Ace Ventura sequel is the one that I picture when I think of Ace Ventura. 
I think it's I think it's aged down a little bit for sure. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it was easier for my child mind. Just like Secret of the Ooze. Oh, All right, Lindsay. Well, this is your VHS copy of The Mask. Uh, do you buy it, rent it, or tape over it? You know, for me, it's a buy it. It was really fun. It lived up to what I thought it was. It's not a perfect movie, but it's a it's a live action cartoon. You know, I mean, it doesn't really pretend to be more, and it's charming. Buy it for me, too. I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's aged well, considering that it's over 20 years old at this point. Oh, God. The um, And the CGI still looks pretty good. And, and I mean, partially for the reasons we talked about, that it's used somewhat sparingly and more just for these sort of button moments, like his skull popping out of his face <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, all the performances are fun. Uh, very impressed with Jim Carrey, Cameron Diaz. Um, yeah, it's a fun slice of 90s nostalgia that you do not need to be afraid of revisiting. Like with so many other things. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sean, what are we going to watch next time? Since the next episode is coming out right around Valentine's Day, I th- oh. thought I'd pick us out one of those old rom-coms. But as I was scanning the shelves, I realized, well, you know, I could go High Fidelity, I could go When Harry Met Sally, but I know these films so well. So I thought, maybe I'll do something a little bit different and choose a famous rom-com that I should have seen by now, but I haven't seen. So I'm going to go with the Julia Roberts, Richard Gere classic, Pretty Woman. Oh, I actually watched that the other day at the gym. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. Should we do a different movie? No, let's watch it again. You I watched... mean, I missed, I missed the first section of the movie. You watched Pretty Woman in its entirety at the gym? No, I watched like the last hour of it. Oh, okay. So you were on the the elliptical or something? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, shoot. I, now I wish I'd chosen something else. No, but... let's watch it. I want to see it where I'm not exhausted and thinking about how I can't stop moving. You know, it's just one of those movies that... It's one of those holes that I have in my pop culture uh, understanding. And I feel like I know the beats of it and I know the famous scenes mm-hmm. just because it's been spoofed and referenced and everything. But I figure uh, what better excuse to watch it than on our VHS podcast on Valentine's Day. I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can hear more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn more about us and our other episodes at our website, tapeheadspodcast.com. You can also contact us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear your feedback. Please rate and review on iTunes. That's it for Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time. 